That's going to be added to the list. Yeah, add it to the list. Sam sounds. Inward scream. Sam sounds calm. You'd be surprised how often the inward scream appears in my everyday life. Just a... Yeah. <laughs> You're going to injure yourself. Yeah, it's the best way to do the, the handbrake turn. Then. <laughs> how often are you miming a handbrake turn? Often. More often than one would think. In the car. Most commonly. <laughs> it's really just to cover an awkward segue in conversation. Like, it's something you really want to talk about. And you're just going, <laughs> now. Oh, I mean, it's a segue for sure. Prussian history. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about Prussian history. No, that's why he has to cover it with a handbrake. Yeah, that's right. You know Bismarck? That. I know of Bismarck. <laughs> He's from Prussia, I think. No. Wasn't he from... What? Wasn't he from... I'm going to... No. I'm losing this. You know what? No, what show was he from? <laughs> Wasn't he from no, like he Desperate No, I think he was a Prussian prince, king. Pardon. A prince king. king? I think he was a king. Wasn't anyway, he? No, he was a he was a humble servant. He was a, a warlord. <laughs> <laughs> a humble servant of Maybe the god. Maybe I'm thinking war. about Wilhelm. You're thinking about prince, Wilhelm. Prin, prince Wilhelm II. You said prince king. Prince king. <laughs> it's like it's like an adolescent uh, royal. It's a prince it's king. A Hamlet. It's a halfway point between the metamorphosis between. Uh, like a butterfly, he's the chrysalis. Of course, because a prince is essentially like an amoebish kind I'm, of I would like, think I'm more using it in the Machiavellian term where prince means king. Yeah, because that's really recent because prince meant ruler, was just like princeps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the, it, the whole idea of prince being the son of a king is- like I'm sorry, can recent. we lower the tone of this again? Because we were making dumb jokes. <laughs> you, just, you just made it very serious and I don't appreciate that. <laughs> well, no, it's educational, right? Yeah, but I mean, like, this isn't the educational part of the podcast. You're if you right. want to do a fucking episode <laughs> on the word prince, you, you fucking schedule that in. Okay. Because right now I want to talk some shit. Excuse me. <laughs> okay, very well. We could just start the episode, though. <laughs> <if you prefer>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do that instead. Okay. everyone. Hello. How's it going? Welcome to the Music and Everything podcast. I'm tired and I have a sore throat and I've missed you. So thanks for joining us. We hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. We're excited. The last couple of months have been really fun for us and we hope it's been fun for you guys as well. My name is Jim. I'm here once again with the awesome Sams to talk and get excited about some stuff. Before we kick off, It'd be really great if you've been enjoying the episodes to chuck us a rate or a follow or a share or tell all your mates about the podcast, annoy them to the point that they're no longer your friends. <laughs> We'd really appreciate that. Anyway, enough of that uh, self-important self-promotion. I want to talk to the Sams about a topic today. What are we doing? What are we doing today? Yes. Um, we're doing beekeeping. Beekeeping. Ah, oh, this is so good. This was one of the first ones that we brainstormed when we were like, what the fuck are we going to do on this podcast? It was just like beekeeping for sure. Absolutely I'm beekeeping. Excited. And after having read so much about beekeeping, I'm like, do I want to keep bees? You should keep bees. It- Actually, I feel like we should start with like a <laughs> quote. Eddie Izzard did one of my favorite bits uh, about beekeeping, which is, and it's just the simplest, dumbest thing where it's just, you know, I want to keep bees. I don't want him to get away. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the whole theme of the entire bit. It's quite lengthy, but the, that's, that's, that's the, summary. the cliff notes. I yeah. love that. The Sparks notes. Of, yeah. I love that. So um, now that we've covered the joke I prepared. Yeah. Uh, and like, I mean, but that really is what beekeeping is. Yeah. Because you can't have bees. No. They're not yours. No. No. God, no. You keep them. You make a little home for them and they, and they stay. You witness bees. <laughs> you experience bees. Yeah, Absolutely. So when we're talking about beekeeping, it's always important, um, throwing shapes in the throwing background. Throwing gestures. Um, to, to consider how long we've been keeping bees prisoners. Um, not prisoners. We don't keep them as prisoners. Witnessing bees. Witnessing bees. We've been caring for them actually as well. Because like, I think when we think about keeping bees, you think about just having a hive in your backyard. But there's work that goes into keeping bees. Oh, I imagine there's work. Yeah. Even you- just like fronting up and going, all right, I'm going in. 
Yeah, and to like the bees. I'm like, can I just get a can I just get a read on the room? How how do we feel about bees? No, oh, I, I love bees. Uh, I've been stung a bunch and they, it sucks, but I, I love the idea of bees and I think that they're adorable as well. Okay. Would you want to open a hive though? First of all, the word hive is upsetting okay. uh, in and of itself. <laughs> all right, we'll uh, refrain from saying but that. But I, I would love to keep bees. I would love to keep native bees, I think, the stingless kind on account of having children and yeah, also absolutely. the feelings. And the feelings, yeah. Because um, I'm like... I love bees. Bees are adorable. I think we can all agree that bees are adorable, right, Sam? Yeah, I think they're the most adorable insect that swarms. You know, like every other insect that swarms, humans are like, oh God. And then just like, you know, ants, anything. It's a plague. (laughs) Cockroaches. And then it's just like, bees is like, oh, look at the little guy. Look at at him go. It's so adorable. swarm at the hive, both of which are words (laughs) that are just plain awful. Yeah. So um, our relationship with bees extends back longer than one would think. Um... Approximately nine to ten thousand years. That's a long, a long stretch to time. be buds with bees. But I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that much because I mean, mm. there's there's all these like biblical references to honey and stuff, and the Bible's pretty fucking old. Isn't I it? mean, sure, <laughs> yeah. So um, the early the earliest piece of evidence that we found around beekeeping is from Africa, and they've actually found not just hives but pots of honey. Um, but oh wow, which is which wow. is pretty phenomenal. Like, I'm sure you're going to talk about this. Honey, pretty shelf stable. Like, that shit will last forever. But when I was researching uh, how old beekeeping is, they always put domestication of bees in in, in quotes. Scare quotes. Scare (laughs) quotes because it's like the domestication of bees. And I'm like, yeah, because they will leave if you don't take care of them. Mm. They will like, if you're a bad... lover, they will go. (laughs) You're a supervisor. We supervise bees. Yeah. Is everyone okay? Is everyone behaving themselves? We're all good. No infections. Can I have some of this? No. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm like, I'm like, Bye. So the honey is a big reason why we like had a relationship with bees. The original reason. The original one. Yeah. The like original- some brave person stomped in and went fist first into a hive and went like, oh, I'm going to get whatever this is. And then was brave enough after being stung quite so many times to just suck it down. To just eat it. And yeah, went, so, <gasps> so there's many different reasons why one would keep bees. And honey is one of the most obvious ones because everyone knows what honey is and everyone knows that you can't have honey without honeybees. Um, mm. But the other thing is obviously pollination is a really key principle uh, around why you would keep bees, but that wasn't the original reason. So the evidence that they found, particularly in these sort of like really ancient beekeeping practices, was they were they were literally just doing it for the honey, mm. and they weren't necessarily keeping the bees in the sense of the way that we think they weren't making hives for them, but they were keeping an eye on them and supervising the, sta- the bees. Super, supervising the bees, you know, micromanaging the bees. Yeah, maybe there was like there was a whole swarm of bees. Right, the first village that did this, you know. Okay, so just picture, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, that bees kept coming through town, you know, like a posse in the Wild West, you know, shooting their guns in the sky. Like cool and, leather jackets. Yeah, stomping through the guy, like, kicking open the door of the saloon. And um, and they got sick and tired of it, mm-hmm. the townspeople. So instead of fighting the, the posse, they decided to set up a little place for them just outside town so mm-hmm. that they could, you know, you're welcome here as long as you sort of stay over there and come in and be polite. And then they would bring and offer them tribute. Did you just be polite to me quietly? Knowing the joke is so shit that you mime saying it to, to avoid being recorded saying the joke, be polite. Um, yes, there will be plenty of puns throughout this entire right. episode. Yeah, be yourself, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so there's some of the oldest um, like uh, art records of humans' relationship with honey. Um, is really old, like at least 8,000 years ago. Just pictures in profile of people screaming and going, ah! <laughs> well, it's a really weird, it's actually really cool. So this is an image in Cuevas de la Araña, which is the caves of the spider. She loves lair. She loves lair. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I, thought, I misread it at first because I thought cave of the spiders. I'm like, okay, gross, but I get it. But it was cave of the spider. And then I became afraid. Wow, so singular. Singular with, spider. With the, uh, with the uh, definite eye. Yeah. That's the image that was in that cave. Yeah, so if you, if wow. you have a look at this, um, Visual this image. Visual You can go to, go to Wikipedia. <laughs> What's the page? Uh, it's literally the wiki for beekeeping. And it's okay. in the history section. And there's a little oh diagram and it's brown. Yeah, and you can see it's kind of hard to make up because it's mad style. <laughs> wow. Like, 
That mad prehistoric style. We'll throw a picky up on Instagram. Yeah. You guys can check that out. Yeah, so what it's depicting is actually a person climbing a ladder, going into a beehive with a bucket, and there's bees around, and they're mm -hmm. collecting the honey. And that's from 8,000 years ago. What do you think bees are thinking, you know? To derail this a little bit. <laughs> but it's just like when someone's climbing a ladder to their hive and they've got a bucket and they're like taking the honey and stuff, they're like, oh, I, I made that. I did that. It's, excuse me, that's for the that's for the boss. I can't, you know, <laughs> she's going to be on my back about that. <laughs> well, they actually, they have um like guard bees. That aren't doing a very good job. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying their best. Destroy the giant. <laughs> so when, when you get, if, if they think you're going to threaten the hive in some way, they send out these pheromones and that triggers them to attack you. And the only reason why they don't eat beekeeping is because um, of like smoking and stuff. Mm. Because we're all like smoking cigarettes nearby and it just, no. Yeah. Like if you actually have a deliberate little smoker and all that does actually, because there's this sort of myth that it makes them sort of numb or something. That's not actually mm. what happens. It literally just means they can't smell the pheromones through their little antenna. To attack, right, okay. To attack, so they can't hear the guards. Yeah, okay. And so they just kind of chill. So you may have noticed that Samuel did all the science research for this podcast. Oh, wow. So he, it's like storming into the posse's camp while they're asleep to take their beans. Yes, exactly. I'm stick on this Western thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm liking it. So, um, so this whole smoking thing is a really uh, important element when it comes to beekeeping because it is as ancient as beekeeping itself. This idea of smoking the hives is really important. There's depictions in Egyptian art from about four and a half thousand years ago mm. of them having these simple hives and this smoking sort of being depicted in this artwork. And uh, some even from the um, the fifth dynasty, Egyptian fifth dynasty, so that's about 242 BCE. Two, wait, no, 242. 2422 BCE. They were, you know, they've, they've got all these beautiful on temples, on sun temples, these depictions of workers blowing smoke into hives to remove the honeycomb. So th these are ancient practices that we're now sort of just oh, kind man. of, and- I love how clever people are. People are so clever. And actually there's um, the oldest archeological records of like, of hive maintenance was in Rehov between the bronze and the iron age. So about 3000 BC to about 900 BC, sometime in there, they can't date it quite accurately. Um, but they, they think the hives that they found are from about 900 BCE. There were 30 intact hives made of straw and unbaked clay, but the area in which it was found and the way that it was set up meant that they could have had hundreds of hives in this in this area. So that's over a million bees <laughs> and a potential yield. <laughs> that's a lot of bees. I gotta say, that's less cute. Yeah, when less cute. When they're in that volume. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, it becomes a volume of bees at that point, yeah. right? It's not discreet anymore. Say it's an um, ocean of bee. But they could have, they, they would have had a potential annual yield of about 500 kilos of honey and 70 kilos of beeswax, <laughs> which is, is basically one of the most, it's like one of the earliest examples of advanced honey industry. And this was done in ancient Israel. In so the what, Jordan what were they Valley. doing with it? They were selling it. They were they were they were getting the honey and that they were and the beeswax and the beeswax is used to make candles and oh, soaps course, and all yeah. of that and the, the honey is sweet. So it's fixated food. on honey as as just brekkie food. Also, but of course, it has multiple uses. Yeah, so. I mean, it has medicinal uses as much as anything. Hot toddy. Uh, ancient. Call <laughs> 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 it back. Uh, like ancient people also like they were making something else with the honey, which was mead. Um, and yum, yum, yum. Yum, yum, yum. So mead um, is not what I really thought it was. I remember the first time I tasted um, mead was actually, Jim, you brought back some mead from the UK, like, I don't know, like 13 years ago or something. I don't remember. Naturally, I have no recollection of this. Yeah, and it tasted like, I expected it to be, because it's like depicted in this sort of like Beowulf-esque sort of like, swing me another mug of mead in the mead hall. And you know, all I those sort of, British Vikings, yeah. I sort of pictured <laughs> like honey beer and it's kind of more like a really rich dessert wine. Mm. Might not have been eight thousand years ago. All those soft Vikings. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's just uh, just as bad as old as our records of honey as well. Like we're talking mm. like um, like there's an early evidence in China in seven thousand BCE, um, and of course like tons of writing in Europe and also India, um, from about three thousand years ago onwards. I want to do a more in-depth episode on alcohol where we cover stuff like this. Mm. Um, but I would love to dive into down the track. How ubiquitous the idea of discovering something like in humankind, <laughs> discovering something going, I bet I could get fucked up on this. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I can find a way to alleviate the stress of my day on this. 
Yeah, so you basically ferment it. It's just like a honey wine, essentially, when you mix it with water. And nowadays you mix it with yeast and whatever you want mm-hmm. <laughs> for flavors and stuff. But back then I was just, it was just natural yeast and stuff from the honey. So, um, and it would kind of, it's roughly the strength of wine when you think about it. It would mm. sort of be around 10% alcohol. Um, yeah. But sweet and delicious. Amazing. Yeah. And it was, okay, so why, why meat is almost as universal as honey, right? Is You can see it in the etymology because um, the root of the word mead in you know, English um, goes through so many languages, it goes to Proto-Indo-European language, to base, a word that is essentially just mead. And it goes all across Europe and it's basically just the same word saying mead. Again, even the Chinese word for honey mm. today is like uh, me, it's a similar word, phrase to that. Um, which is also from an Indo-European root, from a word that was meat. <laughs> That's unreal. This is my favorite thing about early trade commodities because it's one of those things. And again, let's do an episode on language. <laughs> I'm not going to derail this episode. I am going to do it over and over again. But like the idea that like an early trade commodity is something that affects and infects language that has branched off in a thousand strands of spaghetti to modern language now, that it's like the words like salt and pepper and and meat and stuff like that exist across completely seemingly unrelated languages with different roots and stuff like that. Let's not get sidetracked, Samantha. Well, I do want to get sidetracked a little bit because we- God damn it. I'm I'm doing a second etymology break right now because that was the first one. But I want to actually talk a little bit about the etymology of what is the professional term for what is beekeeping, which is apiarist. An apiarist. Apiarist. A purist. No, A-P-I-A-R-I-S-T. Apiarist. Possibly a purist. <laughs> it, it, um, it is, uh, stems from the 1650s, and that um, is basically when European domestic honey really kicks off and becomes a much, much larger part of the, the um, practices, agricultural practices and stuff in that time period. But it literally... So an apiarist is literally a beekeeper or bee master. Oh, I like bee master so Which much is very, very cute. <laughs> and apis. It sounds like someone who can summon bees. Yes. You know, you want them in your party because you need someone with a, you know, like they can buff everyone else yeah. and summon bees. Yeah. And so, so an episode on tabletop game. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, apis is just the Latin word for bee. All right. Um, and we don't know why. What do you mean we don't know why? Like there's, it's unrelated to any similar word in other Indo-European languages. There isn't another similar root. Like we can't. Straight up made up, made up word. Yeah, I think someone it's was just like, look like at, but also, <laughs> what is. Shut the fuck up. Oh my God. I can't believe you just did that. That's fucked. But what is the science, because the scientific name for a honeybee is like Apis mellifera. Yeah, Apis mellifera. Yeah, I didn't Which do you'll the never science. guess, means in Latin, honeybee. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. So my Picture your classic, iconic bee with your cute little yellow stripes. Like a little bumblebee. (laughs) Oh, it's so cute. With a big bum. (laughs) (laughs) Someone I call them that. They're a Western honeybee. They're the European honeybee. But it's not really the European honeybee because they also came from Africa and are still in Africa. So they're the Western honeybee as compared to the Eastern honeybee, which is the two that are domesticated. Eastern honeybee is Apis serrana. I don't know what serrana means actually. Okay. Probably East. I don't know. <laughs> you got thousands of words and notes and, and no reason to not know. <laughs> but one of the biggest, so basically the domestication of bees and the beekeeping practice was fairly similar. They kind of let them make their own shapes and, and then they extracted the honey. Um, it wasn't until about the 18th. And honey extraction really early on was quite damaging because they had to Rip break open the comb. Which, and it, it can it can be quite devastating to the population The Winnie well. the Pooh method. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like get up in there, rip oh, shit together. Honey. And I honestly, Wait, like, it's here. so funny that when we talk about bees, the, the, their greatest predator is bears, which are another adorable yet violent and kind of scary <laughs> creature. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, these guys- anyway, Much made in heaven. That, I'm not gonna get into that. Watching but we bears see- destroy a hive is one of the most adorable things <laughs> to watch. <laughs> Oh no. But in the 18th century, there was just like this remarkable shift in technology or this development of technology, which is the technology we use now. And it stems from the 18th century. Um, And it's the movable comb. And gloves. (laughs) (laughs) No, they had, oh my God, there's like like 15th, 16th century images of people in the full full garb. Apiarist outfit. Yeah, so obviously there's PPE, protective equipment you sort of need. Mm-hmm. One of those, the only one that's really essential from my reading is the hat and face net because 
bees will what like go for your face and neck. I'm yeah, they sure. go for your neck again. Well, and it's also because that's the only place they'll hurt a bear as well. Do they know? Well, because they go after bears, and we're sort of. So there's an instinctual kind of like. Yeah, they just go like go attack the They construct hexagons. <laughs> like, Actually, yeah, I shouldn't. Yeah, all right, yeah. good point. <laughs> So they had all of that already. And then um, this guy called, what was his name? Sorry. Hmm. Apis Meleferamon. <laughs> Lorenzo Lorraine Langstroth. What an Not absolute joking. legend. Lorenzo Lorraine Langstroth was the guy that invented and established the movable comb, which is essentially when you picture a modern beehive, you've got this box and you've got all these frames that you can pull in and out of and they build their wax combs on the frames. They don't build them across between frames because they figured out a perfect measurement called the B space, which means that they don't connect the oh, frames man. together. I feel like if you oh, took man. a lot of acid, you could enter the B space. You know what? <laughs> I feel like that too. And so the B space, I've got it here. I was like, what's the B space? Um, it's about as much room for two bees to pass, oh, which oh. is about six to nine millimetres. Yeah, so they, they all stay on the left and yeah. they're very polite. Yeah, they're and there's a little bit of room for love to grow. Yeah. <laughs> so the movable comb... Um, was basically a development from the this thing called a top bar hive. So they used to have these hives where you'd put like a basically a plank of wood and give them some guide rods, and then they would build their their comb in a very sort of like unorganized fashion down. Mm. And but you could still lift Fill it up the in space. and out. Yeah. But what he developed was the frame method. So it's it's enclosed on all four sides, and they put like a wax sheet in the middle. And so it's very easy to maneuver because you're not going to break you, it. So you can take it out as like a slide. As a slide, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Fuck. Oh my God. Yeah. That's so clever. I and love so that. And so it makes it a lot easier. And so you have these boxes and you either have an eight hive Langstroth box or yeah. a 10 hive, uh, ten, so an eight frame Langstroth hive or a 10 frame Langstroth hive. So whether you have eight of those movable frames or 10 of them, and they all have to be spaced with this B space. Otherwise they will do cross framing. <laughs> So you can't separate them out. Oh, so it'll just be like a mess. It'll be a comb. mess. So they, it took a long time of like literally, this guy set up beehives with slightly different lengths and saw which ones did or didn't work. Wow. When is this happening, by the way? <laughs> Triple L? Triple L's movable comb. <laughs> Triple L's. Oh my God, I didn't write the year down. Triple L's movable comb. Um, Give me a vibe. Uh, 18th century. 18th century. What 1700s. A clever dude. What a clever dude. So- like should make it clear, someone else already was like movable frames. How do we feel? But he was the one that like figured out how the to make it work spacing, in the box yeah. and how it works as a hive. And so you've got all of these wooden frames in rectangular hive boxes, maintain, maintaining the correct space. Um, if it's too wide, they won't build comb. If it's too close, they'll they'll do cross combing. Right. Um, I love it. Like the, the phrase pioneering the B space sounds a lot more dramatic than it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so exciting. I'd love to go to the B space. And so the top bar hives are, are sort of, have now been redesigned to use similar techniques as the Langstroth hives do, but they still are just the top bar. And they're a great way for people who don't have a lot of space because they're or they don't have the ability to lift the heavy boxes mm. because when you make a Langstroth hive, you stack boxes on boxes because you need to have like a box for your brood and then you have your honey supers. See, again, we're using words that are fucked, aren't they? Like yes. hive, yeah. Can you explain and brood. What brood is. Okay, so you have to have in any hive, the bottom box is the brood box. Or if you're in a cold climate, like in Northern US, you have to have two brood boxes. So what a brood box is, is where the queen is where the queen lays her eggs and where the hive stores their food, their honey. So you can't remove any honey from the brood box, from the brood box. because it will damage your hive. So what you do is you have enough of a brood box for them to sort of happily live and sustain themselves. And they'll they'll often like reach a little bit of an equilibrium. And then occasionally they'll go a bit crazy, especially during spring when there's lots of nectar. And that's when you take the excess. And that's right? when you sort of, you can actually take um, frames out and dump bees into a different brood so box. So you're not and in just... any way like taking away from their general survival. You want to have a sustainable thing. Yes. And you're, you're taxing the profits. It's like taxing billionaires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you then, once you know that you've sort of got enough of a space for them for their brood, you then put these things called honey supers on, which are usually slightly shallower boxes. Mm -hmm. So the brood boxes are quite deep because you want to have as much comb as that you can give them. And there's lots of bees that live in that space. Mm. And that's also where the entrance of the hive is, is always in the brood box. They always enter through the brood box. And then you put your honey supers on, which are a bit narrower because they can get very heavy. And that's where they always put their excess honey. Brood box sounds like a really good name for like a mead bar. 
Oh. You know, like if you're going to open a mead bar, you call it the brood box. I love that. Mm. We should start a mead bar. Um, uh, I'm pretty tired, man. <laughs> <laughs> so when we're talking about people who are keeping bees and are getting honey as a result of that, what we're talking about is that their hive is healthy and strong enough that they can actually produce excess honey um, and excess comb, which is then stored in a different box higher up. But when I say that there's a lot of work when it comes to beekeeping, once a week you have to inspect the brood box. Once a week at least. And that's the scary part of the job. Well, it's definitely <laughs> like the majority of the bees are going to be there. Right. It's very swarmy. Like watching a video of them opening the bottom box, it's kind of just like, okay, let's <laughs> yeah. keep now. No longer adorable, yeah. Oh, yeah. there's a queen. <laughs> What does the queen actually, look like? I haven't seen. Oh. So they're kind of like longer and thinner, but they're not as much bigger as you might imagine right. from the little worker bees. Yeah. They're, okay. The, Visual aids would have been really also, helpful. Okay, Samuel. actually, I've got to ask this. What sex are worker bees do? What do you think they are? If they've got a queen bee and then- This is a cancellation trap. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not falling into it. Okay. Okay. So the three types of bees in the hive, right? There's the worker bees, which are female. Okay. But they can't lay and fertilize eggs. They can't, they're not sexually reproductive capable. They're girl bossing their way through yeah, girl honey production. Worker bees do literally everything. Then you've got the queen bee, who's just like a like swole worker bee, basically. Okay. Who, they, who they just sort of pick at some point when they're going like, oh, we sense from our pheromone language that the bee, queen bee is dying or something. And they put tons of tons of royal jelly on one worker bee larva, larvae. Mm -hmm. Love Love. Love. Um So into like Beyonce Destiny's Child through to Beyonce now. Yeah. <laughs> Actually they do call her Queen Bee now, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Or they did oh, wow. when last time I checked. Yeah, and then there's <laughs> then there's one more bee, right? Yeah, yeah, there's one more bee. So the Queen Bee can like actually reproduce and create fertilized eggs, which can produce the drones. And the drones are the males. The males yep. do absolutely nothing other than Terrific. Um, mate with the queen. Nice. They do absolutely nothing. They can they can not sting. They can't forage for pollen and, and create honey. They don't do any of the work around the queen and they can't actually feed themselves. So they're See, just like massive, useless people. There's, there's really just so many jokes. There's just so many and all of them are bad and sexist and I'm not participating in that, I Sam. I love that. You're baiting me. <laughs> Yeah, so the queen, right, like, then annoying. goes on like, oh, I'm fresh, I'm a new queen, pops out of the little wax cell that they've put her in. Yes. <laughs> and then the first thing she do does is smell out the rival queens. And that's probably usually like an older one, that, like the old matriarch, that's the old queen. So there's two queens at once kind of thing. Yeah, but not, not for long. long. Oh, God. <laughs> so they, she then goes, I'm going to go fight her to the death. Yeah. And she like flies around the hive going like, until like the battle commences. And then they fight to the death. But um, the young one doesn't always win. I kind of wish this happened with like the British royal family. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, so the, the interesting thing about when you're keeping bees is sometimes your queen bee can fail and by that it, your queen bee isn't producing eggs. Right. And so if your queen doesn't produce eggs, you don't get workers. Worker bees only live for six weeks. So you need her to be constantly producing eggs so that you constantly have worker bees so that the brood survives. Mm -hmm. So if your queen isn't laying eggs, you need to get rid of her. She's trash to you now. Oh my God. So <laughs> one of the so things- no. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, because I, I should say like the, the worker bees can create drones, but only the queen can create worker bees, yeah. Yeah, so, the, so what they end up doing is, so like if you're a beekeeper, you can remove the queen and put in a new queen. And there's lots of different ways to do it. I've got a whole book about it. Um, but What's one of, the book? It's called The Rooftop Beekeeper. By. And I really, by um, Megan Pasca. And it's all about urban beekeeping, which I think is a, it's a new thing that's happening. I think it's really, really cool. Um, and we will probably talk about it a bit later because um, urban beekeeping is just like, it's redefining beekeeping. Cool. Um, and it's new technology. It's, it's really interesting. But with... In this book, she makes a point of going, you need to make sure you get rid of the other queen bee though, because even if you put a new queen bee in there, the old lady can just come and find her and kill her. Mm. And so you're just gonna have to do this whole process again. And starting Did a hive- Did you really think you could come and take <laughs> this from me? And like queen bees are expensive to buy because often you have to buy them. Right. Um, and again, when we talk about urban beekeeping, there is a process of like starting a hive by literally buying a box of bees and just, a, just deliver to you. In a shoe box. And it's like a surprise. It's like, and oh, um, I wonder what. But I'm talking about bee, bee houses, beehives. There's a really, really 
really, really, really cool new hive out out here in these streets. In these, in these streets. streets. And I mean in these streets, it's Australian. Really? It's an Australian invention. It is the latest advancement. We haven't had new beehive tech since, what's his name? Triple Lorenzo R. Lorraine Langstroth. This ain't your dad's beehive. So in 2015, there was the development of the flow hive system. So what you have is you have your brood box at the bottom and then you put your flow hive on top. What your flow hive is, it's a way for you to collect honey without using centrifuge equipment. So in order to get the honey from the honey supers, you have to like break it off. There's two different ways to do it, by hand the or by honey machine. honey supers? So supers are the names of the boxes. Oh, right, okay. I so, thought you thought there was like supervisors, like there was a rank of, <laughs> of B, you have to like fill out all the paperwork and- <laughs> And they check I mean, the bureaucratic side of things. Fight to the death. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's seen the bee movie, which is 100% accurate, that's absolutely this is, what That's happens. where most of my knowledge of bees comes <laughs> from. Well, the first thing they get wrong is that the main character is male, <laughs> as we just discussed. I like, see, I see. Yeah, so the, the, so the boxes are called supers and the honey super is the one where they store honey. Um, so you take out all of the frames, all the filled frames from the honey super, mm-hmm. put blank frames in there. They keep filling that up with honey. And then Good you have to them. like centrifuge <laughs> this so you have to like put it in a thing and it like shakes it all out. Get all the honey Or out. you hand scrape it, hand strain it, and it takes fucking forever. So what this it's does- very satisfying. Yeah, I mean, that's what they say. It is very satisfying, but this makes it, but it also, you're disrupting the bees because you have to brush the bees off of it. You have, it gets very messy because mm. you've got all this wax and honey dripping everywhere. And it's just incredibly disruptive. So the flow hive system, I've actually got a visual diagram to demonstrate what it does. Oh yes. Thank you. Um, so what happens is the comb is made of like a, of a food grade plastic and in its normal state, it's in the traditional honeycomb system. But mm-hmm. then what you do is you turn a key and it cracks the hive open. Right. So that it allows the honey to flow without breaking, having to break off all of the- um, The wax and the, the wax because structure. When you look at a honeycomb, and I've learned so much about honeycomb doing this podcast. <laughs> honey is finished when it's been capped. So when you look at a honeycomb, if it's like, obviously this is like an open cell. If these were all like filled in and capped, they were completely covered. That's where the honey is. So in order to get to the honey, you have to break all that cap open. Okay. This stops you from having to do that because it just cracks it. Mm-hmm. And it just naturally drains. And it just flows out. It goes flows down into a channel and then out a tube and then into your jar. That's so sick. And so it makes keeping bees in your backyard so much less invasive for both you and the bees. Mm. And you can do it with your kids because you're not having to like open up this whole big Meanwhile, box. the bees are in there like, I don't know why this keeps happening. <laughs> I don't know. I swear I built this to code. I swear to God. But you do that. You drain all the honey out. You, you clip it back in. They then remove all the old wax and start again. And they go, hooray. And they're like, yay, more <laughs> you get to make more honey. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> hooray. So this was made by an Australian because he basically was going, I want to keep bees, but man, this is fucking hard. It's so hot here. And uh, and it is really hot here. And there's plenty of Australian beekeepers on YouTube, which are amazing to watch, really? by the way. We watched a few episodes and it was- The Bush Bee Man. The Bush Bee Man is mm-hmm. fantastic. Do we have, do you know, is there like a uh, an explicable reason why beekeeping has become like a- an interest in Australia or is it I think because we've got a lot of (laughs) no I think it's older than that I think it's because we most people have backyards we have a backyard culture yeah Yeah, we have a backyard culture but also I mean the flow hive you can have on a balcony that's true. Which is great. But I and think- And all your neighbors just like, just fucking hate you. <laughs> well, I mean, and like when we talk about urban beekeeping, there's elements of like, you've got to really be careful about what you do and don't do with urban beekeeping. But I think in Australia, there's a lot of backyards. Um, and I think people really like honey here. Like right. it's, it's a big element, but also, I mean, we've all grown up in a time period where it's like protect the bees is like a big yeah, element. It's a ten- yeah. we, thanks to the bee movie, we all know. Yeah, you got to protect those <laughs> bees. And so- the things when, we learn from Jerry fucking Seinfeld, okay? Yeah, absolutely. And like you talked about wanting to keep native Australian bees. Native Australian bees don't produce honey, do they? No, no, they do. So the thing with Australian bees- Fuck yes. Australian native bees, there's actually 1,700 native bees in Australia. 1,700? I thought they were like, oh, surely there's like there's, three. There's like only species? 1,700 total. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, the situation is dire. Yeah, no, no, there's, there's 1,700 fewer bees species. than koalas here now. 
So 11 of them produce honey, but they're all stingless because Australian netter bees are stingless. They're also really, really tiny and they don't really look like bees. Like I love that it bees. debunks that myth of like, you know, Americans and people from elsewhere looking at, at Australia going like, oh, it's just full of deadly shit. Everything wants to kill you. And no. it does, except for the bees. Except for the bees. Unfortunately, though, they're not like true honeybees. Right. Because true uh, honeybees produce a surplus of honey that we can take it. So they're not technically honeybees if we can't have some. Um, it's so human-centric. Human <laughs> yeah, they produce some. So there's that. two reasons because... The, the little hives that the native bees make, they um, they don't produce enough surplus for us to kind of take, <laughs> but also they don't store it in comb. They don't store it in honeycombs. All stingless bees pretty much store in like little wax pots. They got all the cauldron in they little, just like they've got stirring <laughs> it with a little stick. Yes, yes, bring more. Four of their six legs stirring with a little plumbing. And they all and that means they're all puking. Was that, that your bee voice? <laughs> I love how my bee queen was far more sinister. But this is the stingless bee. Oh, I see. Yeah. Now the stingless bee, because they're in little pots, if you try to take those pots, it just spills everywhere and like drowns all the bees. <laughs> So it's don't the, take the honey from the them. The honey defense mechanism is your empathy. Like, <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's we can't do that. Oh, well, there's no awful. bears here, and koalas are they don't they idiots eat anything but eucalyptus leaves. So. Just saying, the stoner tree. Yeah. <laughs> so I think keeping a native beehive is something that lots of people could easily do because they're mm. stingless. They actually don't need a large hive because they don't need all this extra space. It just depends on your motivation for keeping bees. Like if you want to mm. be like an artisanal uh, honey producer, you're not going to use native bees because you can't. You don't want to drown <laughs> drown no, your bees but every day. If you are someone who has a backyard little veggie patch, mm. native bees would do the job of pollination just as well as a honeybee would. Mm. Exactly, and the pollination thing. Like, so we were talking about like the the um, ancient tradition, and it starts with humans' relationship with taking honey and. Um, backyard beekeeping is still partly about taking the honey. But like as soon as humans developed agriculture, they knew what bees were doing <laughs> and they mm. were pollinating. And More than just, look, it's the ouchy-wouchy yum-yums. The... <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> what Surprise, cemented, that didn't catch up. What cemented that to me was that um, finding out that, you know, when colonizers have, human colonizers have traveled to other parts of the world, invaded and colonized with agriculture, mm -hmm. say like the Europeans in the Americas from the 1600s onwards, they didn't just bring potatoes and stuff and we, they brought um, bees. A shoebox full of bees. <laughs> bees. They brought bees and I was thinking, how the hell did they bring bees without the handy box? Like this is 1600s and then it's like- In a shoebox. That must've been a hellish sailing journey. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone um, below decks just- <laughs> Because when, when we think about pollination, obviously everyone knows that bees are essential for pollination. They're not the only pollinators. They definitely get overrepresented for pollinators. There's butterflies, wasps, beetles, birds, lots of different kinds of pollinators. But 75% of our food requires pollination and honeybees are essential for 30% of that. Wow. So they are incredibly important. Wow. And to the point where um, nearly half of the bees in the US are shipped to California simply to pollinate the almond trees. Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but we could definitely talk about the, the problems with- All the bees with... on the bus just like going to California. No, it's very bad for them. Oh, um, oh, oh, oh no. Yeah, because they're getting rattled. Like they, bees are very, very particular. Mm. They need just the right amount of sunlight. They need a water source that's close, but not too close. Mm -hmm. And they don't <laughs> like to be moved. And they have a compulsion based on shapes. I have a question about that, by the way. Oh, you want to ask shapes? about why the shapes occur? I want to ask about the hexagon. Hell yeah, you do. Because it is so, it's some straight lines in nature shit. So it's like, it's, it's, it's fucking insane. It's incredible. So um, what's really cool is that there's a whole bunch of scientists who look into why that happens. And they sort of run experiments where they have like they put the bees in different conditions and to see what shapes they create. Mm. So if you if they can't go any further, they'll produce, you know, like just a rough circle. In some circumstances, they'll produce a square. So but if you looked around the edges of one of these um, boxes that were created, what are the boxes called again? The frames. The, okay. <laughs> if you're looking around the edges of like a frame, you wouldn't necessarily see a perfect half hexagon or something at the edge. Well, yeah, like, yeah, they're rarely like a perfect diagrammatic one, like in on this visual aid here. Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're organic, you know, because they're being pushed by a small insect. Mm. But basically it's just that they push um, in panels and they go as far as they can. And that created the most efficient space. Because if you just put like a, a circle and put circles and stack them with each other or squares, it's not as space efficient as with a hexagon. And it's almost like the species just 
developed that knowledge over time. Because you've got two bees pushing on, a, so the, the beeswax is the central part of what makes the comb. You've mm-hmm. got two bees pushing until they until it's at like a thickness that they can't push it. And it's, they keep just going around until they do that. And then it creates a rough hexagon. It's a fairly good hexagon, but it's obviously slightly curved. Mm. But it's a rough hexagon with these bees kind of pushing um, in these directions. But I think the hexagon is the thing that people obviously know about because it's the bit that you can see. But what's more interesting about the cells is actually what the back of the cells look like. Yeah, because that's it's not a, um, in 3D, it's not a hexagonal prism because that wouldn't be the most efficient thing. So naturally it's a rhombic dodecahedron. Oh, rhombus, there's the word. Yeah, <laughs> I told you. A rhombic dodecahedron. So that's even more complicated. Yes, it is. But it is also the result of just, if you look at it in, in um, Matt Parker on Stand Up Maths on YouTube does a great video on this to explain it, which is where obviously I found out. And he just made these sort of cardboard cutouts where he made uh, the rhombic dodecahedron and he sort of pushed it into the hexagon and you can see how it's basically again they're pushing up against the panels to create the most sensible shape. Yeah. So to, to like create- demonstrate how they make comb, by the way, is they're never making. They're always making both sides at once. Mm-hmm. There's never a time like if they don't have the back, um, like if they're not making comb on either side, the shapes get really weird. Because right? they're pushing against because one they're another pushing in against- resistance. Okay. Yeah. So then when you get to the back of the cell, you've sort of got like all of these angles that are slotting in together. So if you look at the comb on one side. The comb on the other side is offset slightly. Right. Oh, yeah, no, okay. I can see that in my mind. Yeah, so they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're constantly working on both sides at the same time. And so then you've got bees on two different sides pushing. So is this about creating more surface area internally for it to be able to kind of contain more <laughs> shit more honey in, in less wow. space. It's like, yeah, it's like a ratio. <laughs> it's trying to find the perfect ratio between beeswax, minimal beeswax used for maximum storage space. Oh but God. also not, not, not too big for a bee not to be able to fit inside. Bees made the pyramids. <laughs> You heard it here first. Yeah, because they, they also, the, isn't the brood in hexagons as well? I don't remember. Like they sort of- The whole thing, they, the yeah. honeycomb is always made in exactly the same way. So even if it's just to store eggs or it's to store honey or it's to store whatever, yeah. um, it's always made in the exactly the same way. Unless it's a queen one, because I know that's shaped like a peanut. Live for six what? weeks. Yeah, when, when the queen's growing, they make a little queen shaped one. Oh, that's cute. That's nice. <laughs> that's weird, obsessive and strange. And it's, and it's, you know, that's bees. Classist, you know. Um, but bees. yeah. So we Did you just make a sound? Beep. Okay, add that to the list. I don't care. Um, so when you're starting out at beekeeping, obviously there's a recommendation from even even experienced beekeepers are like, when you're starting out, do the full gambit, wear the full outfit because you're going to feel a lot less stressed inspecting your brood. And if you feel less stressed doing it, you're going to look after your bees. They because smell fear. Well, it's not that they can smell fear. It's that you're going to be more clumsy if you're shaky. You're, you're going to make more mistakes. You're going to yeah. make more mistakes. And so you've got like, you can wear um, gloves and a hood hat veil situation. You also can get the full body suits. Awesome. But a lot of like experience- Like you're the guys that show up in ET. So like the, the woman on the front of this, Megan, is wearing in her, she's wearing the hood and veil because protect your face, but then she's just wearing dungarees and flip-flops and no gloves. because like she's psychopath. Because she's- <laughs> You know, she's just chilling on top of a roof. She and she's experienced. She and trusts the bees. She knows what she can get away yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. Kind of and but one of the things that's really important um, is there's two elements when it comes to beekeeping that you need to keep in mind: how to remove a uh, stinger without injecting more venom in, and making sure you wash your clothes regularly. So you I feel like that's something you should be doing anyway. <laughs> no, no, but you're like you're pr- protective two things. equipment. One, know how to remove a stinger, and two, uh, general. Uh, <laughs> but so when you're removing a stinger, one of the things that people always mistakenly do is they grab it and pull it out. But what you're doing is you're grabbing the venom sack and injecting more venom as you pull it out. So <laughs> don't do yeah. that. Because when it sticks into you, it's still, if you leave it there, it'll just keep putting venom into you. So you oh, need to quickly awesome. scrape it off. That's the most vindictive suicide. Yeah, but it's not meant to be. So, okay, I have to talk about this because this is it's a misconception. Okay. So you know how like the, the whole thing is like, oh, bees sting you and then they die. Yeah. And that's been a truth my whole life. Don't do this to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's basically that it's not meant to happen. It's just because our skin is so thick and the skin of most mammals is so thick that when they puncture the skin, it actually just rips out their stinger from their body and they right. die. So it's not an, an nature's intended kind of... Yeah, it's not like it's meant to be sacrificial. Right. Like, because if they can stab insects over and over again, so if like wasps approach or something, they can like go after the wasps and like stab and them. And they should. Mm. And they ought to. They fucking should, because wasps are... 
dangerous to bees. How I feel bad about wasps. You know what I mean? It's like like we're talking about how cute bees are, and you think of a wasp and you go like, yeah, but they have yellow stripes too. That's the bit I don't get. Yeah, they They should be just as cute. They do kind of look like the sports car version of a bee. (laughs) And so there's a bit of kind of my response to that is like, oh fucking douchebag. They're like the bad guy of the movie. I haven't seen bee movie as are the wasps are the bad guys. I don't know. The humans are the bad guys, but anyway. Um, So you want to remove the stinger, and you remove it by essentially scraping your nail like across your skin and it just like pushes it out. Okay. But the other thing too is if you That's get- That's good to know, thank you. Yeah, no, so like learning some stuff, mm-hmm. protect protect everybody. Learning on the podcast. Um, but if you get like, so if they go for your clothes and they try and sting you and it doesn't work because you're wearing your personal protective equipment and you, you're good, you still have to remove the stingers though because it'll just keep pumping out alarm pheromones and then the bees will attack you. So, <laughs> oh my God. Um, just a little heads up. You planted you... a tracker on you. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is the enemy. Um, so they basically, <laughs> especially if you wear gloves because they'll go for your hands because that's where you're handling yeah. them. Um, they'll accidentally sting you on your hands. Giant grabby beast is coming. Uh-huh, the wall um, of snakes. And like, and there's a lot of things you have to consider when you're dealing with like taking all the frames out and putting them back in again. You almost have to like really gently go like, like gently wriggle things in to go like, excuse me, bees, move out of the way, please. Sorry, sorry, excuse me, excuse me, sorry. Um, I provided this lovely space for you. Can I please, <laughs> you know, access um, somehow? So, <laughs> when boxes get too big, the funniest thing is like when you have to like move bees around or when you get like your box of bees to start. I wonder if I, there's a photo in this book, I think of like- <laughs> the photos. Photos. brought to this kind of thing. Okay, everybody go buy the rooftop beekeeper. It's, um, it's a really great, so this is a really great introduction to urban beekeeping because it essentially gives you all of the guidelines around. <gasps> I love the subtitle here, a scrappy guide to keeping urban honeybee. I love that, yeah, that's and very it's, endearing. It's essentially, it's essentially going like, you don't have to be out with lots of land to do this, if you have access to a roof and your neighbours are chill with receiving free honey, go ahead. Cause they're actually not gonna be, they don't wanna hurt you, but bees aren't innately aggressive. But um, you have to just really think about a lot of things before you get your first box of bees. Let me, okay. Here, Here comes the picture. Here we go. So you see that box of bees well, there. Well, I do, the audience definitely does. Yeah, so it's a box of bees. <laughs> okay. um, and I think there's about, how many bees are in this? Let me see. Uh, is this like a competition like with the jelly beans in the jar? There are- <laughs> it's about uh, uh, 1.3 kilos of bees. And there's a- they <laughs> Kilos? <laughs> I love it, it's like, there's a certain point where you stop counting them individually. It's just like, it's like yeah, there's a, a fucking bees. ton of bees. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so what they do is they keep, and they keep the queen bee separate because they don't want them to start making comb. They just want to store, they just want to keep They just want to keep them. So they have like, uh, you can see there's a tin there that's filled with sugar water. Um, And then they keep the queen bee in, I've got more visualized. Oh my Um, God. This book was fantastic, by the way. Um, That's a swarm. No sponsor. No No sponsor. So that's like a little little (laughs) queen cage. Um, And they, they feed her with fondant. What a treat. They feed her fondant. Fondant. No, they often do that if they need to feed like the bees, but without honey or the comb because it's just basically pure sugar. So, yeah. mm, yum, yum, yum. so then what you do is you open your little box, you get your, your queen bee out because you put her in last and you want to make sure she's safe. And Once she's, she's got, had enough buttercream. And she's always in there. <laughs> she's in there with two other bees who are looking after her. So don't even worry. And then you just like bloody toss them on, don't you? They just fang them on You there. just like throw them down. You just a couple of like a good little... Mm, and then you cover them up. You let them chill out Give for a week a or two. Big old shake. And then they'd just be chilling. Wouldn't it be? I mean like... Uh, bee. <laughs> Stop <laughs> it. Wouldn't it be like asking to be stung? You know, surely there's a way that doesn't involve like, just get the fuck out and shake them. Well, no, so what you need to do is there, well, okay, so the fun thing about swarms, um, and I think you have some interesting things about swarms, is when they act as, when they're swarming in that way, they're actually kind of behave more like a liquid than a solid. So they will just all cling together and fall. Okay, everything about that's fucked. The <laughs> word, the description, hey, I don't like but it. But what's fun is that they don't attack you as a swarm because they don't have a hive. So if they're like between hives and they're on the move, then really not aggressive. They don't def- defend themselves in the same way. You so don't just stress about nomadic bees. They're just on their way. Yeah, and um, so you can have your hive, they can leave, right? So if you if you haven't met the conditions that they require and some bees require more than others, they will leave. They will literally just vacate. Your place is trash. Yeah, this is terrible. I'm not getting enough water. Where is the honey? Get out of here. Where's my wildflowers? So they'll they'll go, but they'll- <laughs> I only eat fondant. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll swarm and they'll go somewhere else. Um, and you can sometimes get the swarm back. 
Um, but uh, one of the ways that people say you could start a new hive is just like wait for swarming season and then just go steal someone else's bees, essentially. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> There's someone out there with a net. And they're like, ah, I um, found some bees. So swarms are completely harmless, but I think they freak people out. And I think that's the same with like bees and beehives in general, which is why when we talk, like when we're looking at like urban beekeeping, the kind of beekeeping that any of us would be getting into, because we don't own like acreage out in the countryside. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be really considerate of how your bees are going to be interacting with the space and are they going to be interacting with lots of people because bees kind of put people off. Have you put this in the car park or a thoroughfare? Like, yeah. and <laughs> Loads of space on the school oval. Let's just go. Well, and schools are actually starting to have beehives now. Are you actually serious? No, because they'll often have like a part of their agricultural science sections. They'll have like little... F- beds, like um, garden beds, and they'll have a few native beehives awesome. and honey beehives so good. because it helps with pollination. So if you're like, like you're wanting to set up like a nice little garden bed in your backyard, if you just had a little native bee, it would mean beehive. It would mean that your crops would be. Like, Must be a really good place for detention. Like, you know, like <laughs> oh my God. behavioral control. You know, Jimothy. I will put you in the bees. <laughs> in the bees. Yeah. Um, so when you think and- The report cards, I got straight bees. <laughs> Fuck off. Fuck the both of you. Oh my God. Fuck I'm this just... podcast. <laughs> I'm out of here. So you would think that there's this mis- misconception that urban beekeeping, you're kind of fighting against the elements here. Things are really, really difficult. You're going to have a really hard time. But city bees are actually healthier than um, rural bees, as they're known as, because I, it's a US book. Um, because if they're in high agricultural areas, they're often interacting with pesticides a lot more. Whereas urban beekeeping is actually, there's not a lot of those sorts of like, dangerous chemicals for bees. You don't want them like near a thoroughfare of road, but if you just got them like in our backyard here, they'd be thriving because there's no pesticides and there's very few um, like other like possums, rats, those sorts of things. But there's also a greater biodiversity. Wow. Because a lot of agriculture is monocrops, monocultures. So it's literally the opposite of what you mean. Yeah. That's cool. And so- in Australia, every single state has their own bee association, beekeeping association, apiary association. So you can um, sort of get involved in that way and they help you get access to setting up native hives, setting up honeybee hives, all of these things. Mm. Um, but one of the things that you definitely need to consider if you're wanting to start beekeeping in the urban area is consider your neighbours. Yeah. Because even though you might be around people who aren't allergic to bees and like the number of people, do you have the stats on how many people are like the no. percentage, I think it's about like 1% of people are actually have an anaphylactic reaction to bee stings. It's not a lot of people, mm. but it's enough. So you need to like keep an eye on that. But you definitely need to, especially in the instance of like what she was talking about, she lives in an apartment block. Megan Pasca. Megan Pasca. And she's got keeping bees on the roof. Right. right, okay. That, yeah, see, that's better than a balcony, I was going to say. Yeah. You know, so you know, keeping- it would be like on the third floor of six and just, <laughs> just bees. <laughs> <laughs> North yeah. and south. And like- if you had a rooftop access, roofs are a great place to keep bees because they get enough sunlight and you can set up water sources and they're out of the way. Mm. Um, but if you are wanting to keep bees sort of in your backyard, you just sort of got to, you got to make sure that they're not going to be interacting with like being at human height. So a lot of beekeepers will put hedges in front of the bees because it forces them to go up right. and it forces them to go over houses rather than like a through I love this. This is, you know, there's so many sort of questionable things out there that are hobbies that people do. We go like, how, you know, we talked about this with the the Winter Olympics where Mm. it was like, how does somebody get into the luge, for example? (laughs) This is one of those things where it's like, if it occurs to you and go like, yeah, beekeeping, it is an immediately kind of romantic and exciting thing to kind of go, yeah, you know what, that does sound really satisfying and nice. And I think there is kind of a tendency in humanity to want to tend to life also, mm. whether that's in the form of a flower bed or, mm. you know, small garden or House keeping plants. chooks or having a pet of yeah. any kind. You know, the idea of going out and seeing your bees, you know what I mean? Mm. Just going, I was like, oh, good morning, boys. How are you? Please leave me a stop, 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 actually, you know, you know. It's actually ladies. Oh, g'day ladies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, the boys are all sitting inside on the couch yeah, waiting to smash. Like um, there's something about like tending, um, mindfully tending to something mindless it's kind of interesting. That's kind of interesting me, like learning about beekeeping because it's like, it's kind of creepy how mindless, well, bees are, but it's kind of just like that they're a super organism essentially. Yeah, like that the hive is- Okay, I was going to ask about this actually because you did all of the, you're in the science corner today. Um, 
Another one of those things that I believed for my whole life about bees, right, is that, you know, they're, they're a hive mind. The, the yeah. phrase the hive mind sort of comes to, to my individual mind because mm. uh, that's how we are. But, like, is, there, is it true that there's kind of a, a unique singular thought to a hive, as, you know, as, as I understand it from science fiction and nonsense? Yeah, so, like, the, the hive mind is pretty accurate because they are considered a super organism in a swarm or a hive form. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that they have one thought as one. It's more just that they're all their little nervous systems and their tiny little brains are in such constant communication with each other through those pheromone stuff that they're getting through their antenna that they're receiving inst- kind of instructions and needs all at the same time. And so they all sort of operate as if they are thinking as one. Um, and Megan Pasca actually had a great um, quote on that saying it's describing it as like uh, the chemical song of the hive. Mm. Um, this like symphony of pheromones that, and that's how they... Think essentially. So, from one. our perspective, with our strange individual noggins, you know, looking at that, it, it appears to be a hive because it's operating because they don't need to communicate with words or anything so much. Mm. Meaning that you know that, that it's happening at a speed that we can't conceive of because it's like you smell like you need help with this hexagon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and it's like because yeah, as Matt Parker said about the the hexagons and stuff um, on YouTube, like. It's not that they're doing maths. It's like it's just the same way they're not using words when they think. They're they're not doing maths to make a hexagon. They're just following an instinct that that and the structures around them that mm. means that they create this complex shape because it just mm. happens to be the best one and the one that happens in this circumstance. So the idea of like the queen bee being in charge in the hive is sort of feels if you're thinking about like the they're thinking about the communal need of the hive. It's like it, it means the queen bee is not really in charge, right? No, no, they're not, they're not in charge. They're just like an important person. Comrade. Yeah, and they're protected mm. because they're so valuable. And they have obviously like, you know, there's the attendant worker bees who, this is where it feels feels very royal, where you've got like the attendant worker bees who like tend to her. and like Yeah, but I mean, to what extent can we anthropomorphize bees? Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. if we're saying they're not technically one mind, meaning that they are technically individuals kind of communicating on a level that we're not really familiar with, you know, can we really say that the queen is lavishly attended to <laughs> so much as she is just fulfilling her role? Yeah. yeah. Capital C comrade versus small C comrade. Well, no, I think that's a that's a good um, metaphor actually because she is receiving like the information from the hive saying, oh, we need more eggs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she goes, okay, well, now's the time for another mating flight sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they all receive the information from her knowing how productive that's been, how many eggs are coming. Mm-hmm. Like, so... It's really interesting. They're thinking about the way they constantly communicate. Because right. when a swarm happens, when when because sometimes you can have a swarm which is not like your whole hive leaves. You have a half split, so you have half of them going. Mm. Um, and sometimes, and that's not the queen directing that. That's the worker bees going. The conditions are not being met. We need to find a new home. And so, when you think about the hive in that way, it's kind of like like a communitarian, democratic ish system of yeah. we all need to make sure we're all doing our bit to maintain this hive and if some people are not pulling their weight some of us are gonna fucking go but kind of I mean that that almost speaks to the hive thought process again in mm. that like it's you know that this hive is not sustainable for the numbers that we have these numbers are leaving kind mm-hmm. of thing that's fascinating yeah, and in order to avoid a swarm what you need to do mm. uh, is you need to keep an eye on your on the quantity of bees you have and split your hive if you need to do it do it for them Give them mm. more space. Either set up a second brood box or set up a completely new hive. Um, and this is how like people's hives can go from one hive to three hives to twelve hives really quickly. So you can ex- your hives can expand really fast. Again, if- just horrific language. Yeah, <laughs> but and, and it's all about how much nectar is available. And so like if you're in a really rich area with lots of biodiversity and you've you maybe you've planted some really amazing. Uh, flowers that bees like, because that's one of the things that beekeepers talk about is it makes you look at the landscape so differently because you you get to know what your bees like and don't like. And so mm. you start planting more of this, removing these things, considering like you look at trees flowering and go like, oh, the girls all like that. You know, so it, it kind of completely- So in, in much the way that like a cat has you as a pet, yes. uh, the bees are keeping you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, a little bit. They, they completely change the way that you view- the environment around you mm. because you they are so dependent on you and their environment that you sort of realise, oh, wow, I really need to think about where they're getting their water source from, where they're getting their nectar from yeah. and how much I'm taking how care of them. How am I nurturing them. this biodiversity yeah. in my small space? In my small space. And they've been like so important for so long to humanity, but just kind of quietly in the background 
Like obviously, well, not like we so talked quietly, about. Quietly, they very loud. <laughs> very noisy, in fact. Noisy ladies um, buzzing away. Yeah, like you know, so so important to agriculture, um, and for such an ancient practice, like it's been kind of backgrounded up until very recently, up until the Save the Bees, because we've discovered just how fragile they are. I would love to know because okay, so I I made the point before or or the side comment before that I just love how smart people are when you talk about. We're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago and people developing, you know, the smoke technique to be able to get honey out of it, like all of the innovative thinking and stuff. And there's that whole mythos surrounding like all of the conspiracy theories about the pyramids. I know I joked about that earlier as well, <laughs> uh, about like, how do they do it back then? It was all because they were humans and they were smart and probably smarter than you, quite frankly. But like, so I would love to know how well understood it was back then that bees were part of the um, the ecosystem in terms of pollination and and plants. Like, did people keep plants around them, knowing that they would uh, interact with them in a certain way, or was it kind of like a tacit kind of thing? I think it's a really difficult thing to say because a lot of that evidence of what was being grown around them is sort of gone with the way of um, the way that sediment works and the way that some of these archaeological sites have mm. been. Buried, it's hard to it's hard to say, but we only have the kind of human made aspect. The human made aspect, okay. but I mean, there was innately greater biodiversity in the way that agriculture was being performed back then, because we're talking about people keeping, literally keeping people keeping bees in their backyard, well, in their feudal uh, what lots and stuff like that. But they were growing a variety of things because they had to for subsistence. For subsistence, mm. and so it wasn't it wasn't really until this sort of a greater industrialized. Um, where we're now mass production. Where we're, yeah, yeah, the mass production. So you had a good amount of biodiversity, but you also just had a lot of wildflowers growing and wildflowers are just mint to bees. They love wildflowers. So one of the things you could do is if you have lawn, for instance, mm -hmm. leave a patch of it at the edge, let it grow. Let let all of that, let all of the like grass flowers and all of those native things grow, weeds and, native and weeds stuff, and stuff, yeah. like let them let them flourish because bees eat off that. Mm -hmm. And if you don't need to have a perfectly pristine lawn, so we're no thinking- No one fucking does need that. No one needs it. <laughs> no, so like if you, if you, if you have a, if you have a yard, get, you can get um, native wildflower seeds, sprinkle them around the edge, let them grow. Mm. Because, and I think that that's, that's sort of the environment we need to think about when we're thinking about these older practices is they didn't have like trimmed, Mm. Lawns. They weren't keeping up with the Joneses. They no. were keeping up with food they needed to survive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, they, but they had all of these things growing around them. So like they had their veggie patches, but then they also had wildflowers and grasses and mm. stuff that were all being, that were all growing. So they didn't have to think about it. There was it. also an element, strangely, of patriotism in that as well. Like that, you, you know, like my desire to keep native bees, for example, like trying to encourage part of Australia's natural ecosystem, as well as looking at some of our... Uh, native plants and flowers, less as weeds and more about part of the land that we are interacting with, rather than having that thing where we in Australia, particularly white Australia, kind of have that tendency of, of idealizing things from Europe in particular and kind mm -hmm. of wanting to um, reflect some of that in our own backyards. And that's how we, you know, we brought things over to this place that are absolutely running rampant and destroying the ecosystem mm -hmm. over here, things like the uh, like the cane beetle that led to the cane toad and, and mm. rabbits and as well as other weeds and things like that that we've brought over. And um, I think it might be really nice to kind of think about Australian Australian nature less as, as weeds and more about kind of a celebration of our own ecosystem. And I think that that ties really nicely into the whole beekeeping aspect. How did we get to like patriotism for bees. It's such a strange but connection. But I agree. I think that there's, and, and this is the thing where like, particularly in um, North America, in the way that they talk about it, but also in Australia, people, because there are massive, like obviously beekeeping communities online, constantly talking about the fact that they they go, like the even the bush bee man goes, oh, we planted more lavender because our bees particularly like it. And that's a really nice crop for them. But then they also have planted native Australian like wattle and stuff like that because bees froth wattle. They froth wattle. They froth it. <laughs> bees froth wattle. You hear you heard it oh, here first, ladies and gentlemen. And they do froth it because that's how they make the honey. <laughs> they they froth it. Yeah, yeah. They so they go around. So and they it's eat. not just a disgusting sexual allegory. It's actually <laughs> they like, go to each flower and they go <laughs> of the pollen like <laughs> they get their long mandibles and just like and then they have like a the massive sound. overfull. <laughs> they have a massive overfull like stomach thing. Of the of the nectar of the froth, yeah, yeah, the froth, and then they go back to the hive and they actually produce it. They sort of um, digest it, 
They sort and of the process it. kind of like puking it out? Yeah, they like? puke it out, but I always thought they just puked it into the honeycomb. Yep, done. <laughs> like, job <laughs> done. No, they sort of puke it into each other's mouths. And, okay. um, and then right. they constantly froth it yeah. between the mandibles with no. each other. So all the two little mandibles like... You have to stop that. It's all fucked. And by doing that, they like enrich it with all these enzymes from their stomachs and stuff that actually preserves the honey. We eat this stuff. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that people would want to eat honey more after this. I don't know if they will. No, but I'm hoping what they'll want to do is keep bees, not for the sake of the honey, but for just having bees around. But to witness the puke orgy that is the <laughs> production of well, honey. Well, if you have native ones, you wouldn't see it because they're too small. Yeah, and they're, they're off protecting themselves from drowning. Oh, that was the <laughs> no. saddest thing I've heard today. Oh, my goodness. But I think when you're thinking about bees, like obviously they're cute. They're yellow, they're stripy. <laughs> they're cute, they're yellow, they're stripy. This is the things we've learned today. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so, and like obviously everyone knows the bees are important for the ecosystem, but they are just, they're, I think, important for humans to understand their ecosystem. Mm. Because I think bees are like a really great metric for like, how is your area going? Do you have, if, you're th- if your hives in your backyard are thriving, it means you've got great biodiversity, you've got, um, clearly uh, enough of a differing flowering profiles across your suburb or your area to sustain the bees the entire time. You're clearly taking care of them really well. They've got access to good water sources. There's not a lot of threats to them. These are all really great indicators of the health of your area. Mm. If I, you're concerned with your ecosystem, if you want to be a part and uh, do your part for kind of the nature that surrounds you, yeah. then doing that and using bees as your metric for that is pretty interesting because yeah. you also get to nurture them and nurture, you know, their production and their happiness, you know, yeah. such as it is. Um, you're also having an understanding of where you are and knowing that you're doing your part. That's also so romantic. The, also the honey that you produce will taste like... A million times better. Well, because every single... Um, area has a different kind of honey because it depends on the ratio of all the different flowers. So if mm. you were, so we've had Tui forest honey, we've had macrovat honey, tastes entirely different. Yeah. Bush honey versus mountain honey. So your backyard honey would be your specific profile, your specific bees uh, environment. I mean, it's, it's satisfying so enough playing good. that on Stardew Valley, let alone yeah. in, the, in real But like life. you'd be able to taste what your area, like you'd get a sense of what your area tastes like in yeah. terms of the floral pollination, like the flowers and the, and the ecosystem has a flavor to it. I love the way ending up, we're landing on a sense of pride mm. and a sense of self and a sense of, you know, connection. And a sense of place as well, mm. which has always been the case with bees. It's always been about like, you're trying to keep the bees with you. You're trying to keep the bees so that you can still have that relationship with the bees. Mm. How did we do that? I'm so stoked. That's so fucking awesome. So we started with jokes about stripy cute bees and how disgusting the language around bees is and then landed somewhere where we are patriots and we are eco-warriors and we're excited (laughs) about where we live and what we can do and how we can impact the land around us. And I think that that's such a cool lesson to take away from today, let alone the fact that we also covered that this is an ancient practice. This goes back further than I could possibly have imagined. I think that that's, this is something bees have been alongside us quietly for thousands and thousands of years, and I hope that they continue to be as well. I really hope that everyone today has got as excited about beekeeping as we have, and whether or not you end up participating in this yourself and keeping your own beehive or whether you're just going to be doing some research and looking into it yourself because now it's something that is, is of interest. I hope that that's something you can take away from today. I'm thrilled. Thanks, guys. Thank you to the two of you specifically and to... <laughs> sorry, what was the name of that, that author? Um, Megan Pasca, the rooftop beekeeper. Megan Pasca. And who were your YouTube sources for this? For uh, the well, there was Matt Parker from Stand Up Maths um, and there was also the Bush Bee Man, of course. Oh. Well, thank you to all of them for just being amazing and giving us this insight. And it's been a really lovely morning. <laughs> it's been so great. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, if you want to find us on social media, you can reach us at the Music and Everything Podcast on Instagram and at TMIE Podcast on Twitter. It's been wonderful having you hanging out with us today. And we can't wait to join you again in a fortnight. Bye from me and Sam and Sam. Bye. Bye, everyone. Take care of each other and your bees. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.